chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not turning, or was not running, or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out freedom, spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Freedom is a concept that we often think about. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave and all that. It's a concept that we allow to define us as a country. It's a freedom that we have fought for at times. We fought from those without. We fought those within. We have fought for religious and social and government oppression. But the idea of freedom that we have formed in our minds is not always the right idea of freedom. We believe and hold steadfast that we have the freedom of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We believe that we have the freedom of speech to say what we want to say when we want to say it. We believe we have freedom to do what we want to do when we want to do it. But true freedom, biblical freedom, is something that we don't always have a real grasp on. Freedom does not mean that you can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. That's a false notion of freedom. And this is true in all areas of our life. Even in the country we live in, we don't have this true sense of freedom like that. Freedom doesn't mean I can go wherever I want and take whatever I want simply because I want it. I can't. Freedom doesn't mean I can go into a building, a movie theater, or some other place and go, fire! That, in fact, is against the law, isn't it? To yell fire in a building full of people. 
We're not free to say whatever we want to say whenever we want to say it. We're not free to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it because the result of that kind of freedom would be what? Chaos. Freedom has to mean something far different than we think. Because this is the problem that we're running into is that we think freedom means I should get what I want when I want it and I should get to say what I want to say when I, I, whatever I want to say when I want to say it. And that's not freedom. Freedom is not something that is easily gained and once gained it is easily lost. And there are always going to be those who are enemies of freedom, but not the way news stations or TV stations would have us believe. Freedom is a very complex issue. There are many joys and struggle when it comes to spiritual freedom. And this is no less true when we talk about our social freedom. But Paul's concern here is with the freedom that is given in Christ. And over and over again, if you look at Paul's language, he talks about being free to serve Jesus. He is free to be a servant. And in our head, our notion of freedom, those are two opposed things, aren't they? No, freedom means I don't have to serve. In fact, Peter will at times call himself I am a slave to Jesus. I am a bondservant to Christ. He says, that's what freedom has gained me. And this is his concern here. The freedom that is given in Christ. And he writes with urgency. He believed the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. And he says, there are those now who are coming and they want to add to this. They want to take away from the freedom that you have in Christ. And so as we look at our text this morning, we're going to see three things. The gospel protected, the gospel attacked, and the gospel preserved. The gospel protected, the gospel attacked, and the gospel preserved. What's going on in Galatia jogs Paul's memory of an event that had already happened. And he's going to tell us, he starts chapter 2 by telling us, then after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem. Uh, this is 14 years again in that this is not the time he talked about last, uh, last time we looked at it, where he went three years after his conversion. And most likely, from all that we can tell, this event that he's going to be talking about here happened in Antioch. These Judaizers, once again, had secretly entered the church. Now, these are the false brothers he's talking about in, in verse 4 here, yet because of the false brothers. And they were conspiring to hold the church hostage to the law. They were trying to bind up the freedom that Christ gave to them with the law. And Paul knew them to be false brothers. They came in proclaiming Christ, but they were proclaiming Christ plus the law. They were enemies of freedom, which is why Paul takes such a strong stand against them. I think Paul, in this sense, sees himself 
as a freedom fighter. He knew that people wanted to keep this freedom they had in Christ. And if they were going to keep it, they had to fight for it. And so he brings to them truth. They needed the truth of the gospel, this truth that could be only found in Christ. John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Later in John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They needed truth because there were those who were coming in trying to rob them of the gospel, of the freedom that we have in Christ. The price for spiritual freedom is constant vigilance. It is not enough to share and preach the gospel. It's important, but the gospel also has to be defended. And Paul comes in defending the gospel because here's the reality, and this is no less true today. People like to make up their own good news. Let me tell you a good news that comes from Daniel. Let me tell you a good news that comes from Rusty or from Stuart. We like to make up our own good news. People don't like to be told there is one way to salvation. They like the idea that they can mold and shape their path to salvation to suit their needs and comforts. I like this idea of eternity in this good, happy, special place. That's a good idea. I, I hope that that's true. I don't like the idea that I have to give up things now that make me happy, uh, even though these two things seem counter to each other. So it's okay for me to do this now, and it's not going to keep me what will to come. People don't like being told there is right and there is wrong. But this is the reality that in Christ, this is where freedom comes from. Salvation comes only by Christ's death and resurrection. And we cannot add or subtract to this. We cannot. Martin Luther says this. We can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else. But we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith, and Jesus Christ. And that is that. Do you hold to your faith with that sort of conviction? That you're willing to lose your possessions, your name, and your life. Because they don't matter when it comes to the gospel and Jesus Christ. These are all transient things anyway. I think the one that strikes me here the most... and. We allow ourselves to get worked up about our possessions and even our life. But one of the things I think really hit home for me was our name. You think about losing your name. And what does it mean to lose your name? It's about someone who comes and destroys your character, right? Who comes and says, well, let me defame this person's name, make them small in the eyes of the world. And so maybe you're at work and it's not cool to be a Christian. It's not uh, appropriate to be a Christian because we live in a time where that's not kosher, right? <laughs> Oddly. Um, it's not kosher to be a Christian. 
And if you claim Christ, then this will hinder you in, in certain ways. And so maybe the person who's vying for the same job as you is going to come in and say, well, you, know, you know he goes to church. He believes in the Bible. He believes that it's true in all ways. And because he believes it's true in all ways, he speaks out against, he doesn't believe homosexuality is okay and homosexuals shouldn't get married. And he believes that it's, it's a sin to abort babies. Is this true? And what's our response? Our name has been defamed. Are we willing to compromise so that our name is not defamed? Or is the gospel enough that everything else is negotiable? If it means that you won't get the promotion, that you might get fired, that you might even lose your life, is the gospel enough? Because this is the reality. The protection of the gospel, of the freedom that is in Christ, was very important to Paul. And Paul doesn't come and challenge us in some half-hearted, uh, ethereal, theoretical kind of way, does he? We know the life of Paul. Paul, who was beaten over and over again. Paul, who was shipwrecked, who was robbed, who was persecuted by those around him over and over again. He gave up all for the sake of that gospel. And I know, particularly today, there's this temptation when we hear people start talking about theology, our ears turn off, we kind of give, oh my goodness, what is he talking about again? But it's those who are in love with theology who are consumed with protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it's something we must be doing. Theology is the study of God. We must know God. We must know his gospel. And when we fail to do this, error creeps into the church. We begin to trust something else aside from Christ. This is what's going on here. Hey, look, you need Jesus. Jesus is good. Jesus is good with me. Good, good, we got that. Now, let me tell you what else you need. You need the law. Specifically in this instance, you need circumcision. Because if you have Jesus, but you don't have circumcision, you're lost. That's what they were telling the church here. And they invented and created a false gospel. This is a responsibility of the church, as, as Paul has set forth for us here, to protect the gospel. And so it, when the gospel comes under attack, what does he do? He goes to Jerusalem. He talks to uh, Peter and James and John. And he says, we need to figure this out because I believe the gospel is under attack here. In a few months, I'm going to go to General Assembly in, in North Carolina and each Every four times a year, I go to Presbytery, and there is a lot that you can say, and I will not argue with you, that is exasperating about the government of church. But it's also necessary for us to protect the gospel. This is what Paul does. He goes, okay, this is something we need to talk about. So he gets together with other apostles, and they talk about it, and they figure it out. It's why we've had councils and synods in an effort to protect the gospel. 
Because the re- reality is this, the gospel is under attack. The gospel is under attack here in Galatians, but it's still under attack today. So Paul says, I went to Jerusalem 14 years. And if we would go to Acts, we would know that Paul made four trips to Jerusalem. The first we saw last time, three years after his conversion. This is most likely, I believe, his second trip to Jerusalem. The gospel's under attack, and he wants to know. You, you could, on your own time, go to Acts 11 and see what it says there. And so you can kind of figure out where Paul is in his life. He was probably converted around AD 32. He made that first trip around AD 34. And he's making this one around AD 45. And he brings with him Titus. Titus, who is the book of Titus is written about. Or two, I should say, not about. He was a Gentile convert. He was a co-worker of Paul. But he goes to Jerusalem with him. And this is kind of a big deal because he's a Gentile. He is literally the uncircumcised. And Paul is taking a risk here. Taking Titus to Jerusalem. Because circumcision meant everything to the Jews. It was their identity. You were circumcised. That meant you were the people of Israel. And so certainly they would say, if this man is going to be a disciple of Christ and follow after the God of the Old Testament, he must be circumcised. But Paul comes and argues. He says, no, everything that Titus has needed for salvation, Christ has accomplished and it's done. And this was a risk. But the reply of the apostles was that he did not have to be circumcised. The good news is not salvation by faith plus circumcision. The good news is salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. And this was affirmed by those in Jerusalem. And so we see here, Titus is accepted. This is a great victory for the gospel and for freedom. This Gentile convert is now accepted as an as a ambassador of the gospel. And we have to be watchful and mindful lest we add law to the gospel. Because the reality is this, there are no second-class citizens in the church. There is no hierarchy when it comes to that in the church. Everyone in the church is saved in the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Solia grata, solia fide, solia Christos, or sola Christos. It's the, the tenets of reformed faith. We cannot exclude people from salvation for any reason, not for race, not for gender, not for age, not for class, or anything else. And we have a terrible habit in the church of doing this. And we have a hierarchy and a ranking of sin. Hey, look, if you have anger, that's not good, but just keep it to yourself and we'll be okay. Okay, you struggle with lust, that's fine. But just, you know, we don't need to hear about it. But if you're a homosexual, if you abuse alcohol, if you're a drug addict, then you need not apply. Your place is not here. And we fail to understand that there is no difference in our standing before God. 
We never stop calling sin, sin. That's not what I'm saying. But we should not act as if one sin is more acceptable over the other. Titus becomes an example of this. We in the church must understand that the gospel is for all people without exception. The second thing that comes out of this meeting is that Paul's commission to the Gentiles was acknowledged. And it's funny because as Paul goes through here and talks about these men, he called these men who seem to be influential. He's kind of downplaying them a bit. And I don't think that Paul is being standoffish because he's really trying to like say, ooh, it's Peter and John and James, who cares? But the reality is this, that the people who were appealing to circumcision were holding John and James and Peter up as uh, these kind of a big deal. And that they were the end all and be all. Paul understands that they are different than him. He has respect for them, but he's not intimidated by them. John Stott says it this way. Although he accepts their office as apostle, he is not overawed by their person as it was being inflated by the Judaizers. The Judaizers were puffing these men up to a point where they could, could, could say things above and beyond the gospel. And the reality is that for Paul, he does not need them to give him approval. But they do acknowledge that he had God's approval. He was an apostle in his own right. They simply accept it. Because at the end of the day, the Judaizers didn't really disagree with Paul's gospel. They just wanted to add to it. They wanted to improve upon it. And Christians, or those who call themselves Christians, often like to improve upon the gospel. But we can't. You cannot improve upon the gospel. And I think we need to be careful, even as we approach scripture, that we can sometimes come to the Bible and say, let me find that nugget or gem that Christians throughout the ages have not yet figured out. And it's, it's this arrogance and pride that we come to scripture and think that we have it figured out in a way that nobody in the history of the church, not the apostles themselves, had figured out. And we come to it and say, ah, now let me tell you. Let me tell you about the gospel that people have not had for 2,000 years. Because I got it figured out. And there's an arrogance. Edward Moat you may not know that name, but you'll certainly know his words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. That's a wonderful, beautiful summary of the gospel. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The gospel is going to come under attack. It is under attack from those without who call it nonsense, who will mock us and hate us but also from within. And if we're not on top of things, if we're not studying the word of God, we're going to miss these things and they're going to creep in and infect the church. We must be in the word. We must be in fellowship with one another. We cannot do this on our own. This is why Paul goes to Jerusalem. This is why we have to be in fellowship because if we leave ourselves to ourselves on an island, 
then we will make of the word of God something that it is not. But the gospel, the gospel must be preserved. This is what he says in 5, verse 5, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What does it mean to preserve something? We're coming into that season where many of you might be making preserves and preserving things. If you notice uh, our invite on Facebook, and I was told this was done specifically for you, Virginia. It said the gospel preserved and it was in a little mason jar with a lid on top. And the, the idea in that is that, the, that you take something like a, a strawberry or a, a, any other kind of berry or a, a vegetable and you preserve it so that it keeps and it does not, you know, this is a, all, all analogies break down, but it will keep for longer than it should. And we must be preserving the gospel, not for just a time, but for all time. The, the apostles in Jerusalem understood that the gospel was a partnership and they each had different roles. Paul was meant to go to the Gentiles, even though Peter did at times go to Gentiles. We know he did, but he, specifically Paul was meant to go to the Gentiles. And Peter was to go to the circumcision. And we not only allow these differences in the church, but we rejoice in them, provided that the gospel is being practiced at all times. We maintain the gospel of free grace and we can compromise on many things, but the gospel is not one of them. Justification through faith alone and Christ alone to the application of the Holy Spirit is not debatable. And interestingly here, they only asked that Paul remember one thing. They didn't correct his theology. They didn't correct his application of the gospel. They asked, hey, look, we just ask that you remember the poor. And Paul says, well, that's great because that's what I was eager to do anyway, to remember the poor. But let us move for a second to conjecture. What if Paul had lost? And this, in a sense, is, is silly, right? Because it's not just Paul who's going forth protecting his gospel. It's God protecting his gospel. But if we were looking at the history of the church, there were times where people like Martin Luther came before the church and took a stand for the inerrancy of the word of God. And, and in a way, he lost, right? He was kicked out of the church. And the church, I believe, suffered for it. We know that Paul won his fight for spiritual freedom and God went before him. But Paul understood something. They needed to be unified. It wasn't that he could just stay where he was and say, look, you guys are crazy. I don't need your approval. I'm not asking for your approval. He understood something. He, he, he counts it to a race. Uh, I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And in essence, he's saying, I want to make sure that we're carrying the same baton. Because what happens in a race if you go to pass off the baton and it falls? You're disqualified, right? Again, all analogies break down. But there's an important thing he's saying here. We need to be unified in, in, in the race that we're running. And if 
there was a failing to do this. If he had gone to Jerusalem and James and Peter and John said, no, Paul, you're wrong. We affirm these Judaizers and what they're saying, and we're casting you out of Jerusalem. What would that have done to the early church? What kind of lasting effects would it have had? It would have had long-lasting effects. John Stott says this, The Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace and the death of Jesus Christ received by faith. To introduce the work of the law and make our acceptance depend on our obedience to rules and regulations was to bring a new man into bondage again. Paul understood that this was an issue of freedom. But now we fast forward to now. And we have to see that it is now our responsibility to be those preservers of the gospel at all costs. Because the gospel continues to be the heart of all that we do. It is the thing that delivers us out of death into life. And we fight the same battle that Paul fought today. There are those who would come into the church and say, yes, you need Jesus. That's good. But let me tell you what else you need. We live in a time where sadly churches are making the idea of relevance the primary thing. How do we remain relevant in a post-Christianized nation? How do we make ourselves remain important? And I don't mean to undermine their desire. Their desire is to keep the gospel forward, I think, but I think they're doing it in the wrong way. Because in trying to keep the gospel relevant, there are times where the gospel becomes compromised. Where maybe we go through a church service and we don't hear about Jesus the whole time. Because, well, Jesus can be offensive. They say we won't survive if we're not relevant. And my question would be this. What are you trusting in? What are you willing to give up for the freedom that you have in Christ? Because you can come to this church here and you say, well, or you, and you can go to any other church, and I'll just keep it in the PCA in Birmingham, and you can see some stark differences. We, if we're pushing it, we might can fit, what, 130 people in here? There are churches in Birmingham that you can literally fit thousands of people in. And I'm not condemning or, or saying anything about any of these churches, but I would question at times... What is it that we're putting forward? This idea of relevance? Or are we trusting in the gospel? And that is a hard line we push. 
Because I believe when we start hearing things like, well, we need to have programs that are attractive to families so that we can bring kids in and that kids are going to build a church. So we need to make it as flashy and as nice and as attractive as possible so that we can get people in the church. And I go, where's the gospel in that? Or we come in and we say, look, we, what's cool today is for to have a, a great band up here and we need drums and we need bass guitar and we need uh, two or three singers and we need to have these sets of songs because that's what's going to be attractive to people and bring people in. And I ask, where's the gospel in that? And I'm not saying that that's bad. Either of those things are bad. But the question has to be, what is our motivation? What is motivating us in the church to do the things that we're doing? Are we struggling only to remain relevant? Or are we striving to put the wonders and unadulterated, unchanged beauty of the gospel before people saying you no longer have to be slaves to this world you no longer have to be slaves to being relevant what you need is christ and christ alone you are a sinner in need of his grace and that means we come to people and say you do things wrong oh excuse me no you don't tell me i do things wrong it can be offensive to people. But we have, must have a willingness to challenge others. And it doesn't mean we come and beat people up, not like the Pharisees, and say, let me tell you all the ways that you're wrong today. That's not what I'm talking about. It's coming in love and saying, you are a sinner in need of grace. And let me tell you about the wonder of beauty of Christ, that you need to do nothing for him. You come with empty hands that he receives you as his child. Paul comes and sets up for us who he is and what he represents. And in doing so, he has presented the gospel to us. It was something that was very important to him and it should be very important to us. And he protects us at, at all costs and we should protect it at all costs. Because we understand that there are always going to be those who attack the church. They're going to come in all shapes and forms. Sometimes they'll call, come boldly like a lion. Sometimes they'll come cunningly like a snake. But the gospel must be preserved. It's the only hope we have and this life, in this life and in the life to come is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Christ from first to last. It's all we can hope for. It's all we need. It's what we come and we celebrate here. Christ's body broken. His blood poured out. Would we, like Paul, add nothing to this gospel and yet go boldly forth, proclaiming its goodness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this passage for me and I hope for others hits very close to home. 
In a time where we're struggling to remain relevant, and yet it's not about relevance, for you will always be relevant. We are called to proclaim the unadulterated, unchanged gospel of Jesus Christ. Would we do so, protecting it as it is dear to us? Help us as we struggle through this, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please stand as we sing the first two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.